Hi, everyone, and welcome to Frankly, the energy podcast for founders. I'm your host, John Mishriki, where I'll be dealing it straight to you from entrepreneurs who have scaled and failed, investors who are passionate and have seen it all, and leading tech voices that are looking to build moonshots to change the way we live. Welcome, everyone. I'd like to welcome Azim to Frankly. Now, Azim is the host of Exponential View podcast, which is top 10 podcasts in technology in the UK and top 15 in the US. But aside from that, Azim, you are a entrepreneur to the heart. That's how you started this journey. And not just an entrepreneur, an investor and an advisor. I'd love to know what inspired you to be on, on the mission that you're on right now to explain how societies and the way of life change under the force of exponential technologies well thanks john and thanks for the uh, invitation to to be here as with many of these things it starts a long time ago so i'm a child of the microprocessor in fact i was born the year after intel launched the 4004 chip in the very early 70s without realizing it i've grown up alongside moore's law which is the you know the relationship that explains why computers get so much faster every couple of years. And I think having spent several years building a company, when I came out of that process and it was acquired at the end of 2014, I did notice that the world was really starting to change. And that change was being driven by some really, really key technology platforms. I mean, deep learning had appeared from nowhere amongst other things. And as I dug deeper, I found more and more technologies that were independently improving at a, an exponential rate, not just Moore's law, but also things in genomics and systems biology or synthetic biology. And of course, also things in the energy space. And as many an oil company knows and many an energy forecaster knows, lithium ion batteries, wind turbines, and even solar uh, cells have all improved in price performance um, at exponential rates for many, many years and much faster than they expected. So I felt that there was something going on and I decided to write about it, which I do in a weekly newsletter. Um, and that turned into more opportunities. Uh, yeah, not just opportunities. I think you've, you've been a, uh, a clear voice to a lot of people, um, specifically in the area of, of energy and, and climate change. I actually remember reading your um, 2020 New Year's uh, newsletter the first point that you addressed was you saw that climate change is a dominant narrative for the next 10 years. Has that changed since COVID or do you still believe that? And why do you believe that? Uh, it hasn't changed since COVID. It remains the single most important stressor in our system. And if we don't do something about it, we'll simply increase what the business world and the political world banally calls risks. So it will put stress on natural resources, it'll put stress on water, it will put stress on urban populations and rural populations alike. And that's before you get to the existential possibilities where it really, really damages our biosphere. So I think it ends up becoming the dominant narrative from a burning platform perspective. But I also think it becomes the dominant narrative from an investment returns and business opportunity perspective. Because, you know, like it or not, regardless of where you stand, uh, decarbonization is going to happen. It's something that is misplaced in the political rhetoric and uh, that, that goes on and it's become very partisan in the sense of sort of Greta haters and Greta lovers but ultimately the world of finance is sort of implacable in its reading of risk uh, and so as soon as 
investors, especially long-term investors, start to say, hey, I can't invest in the 50-year lifespan for like some kind of coal-powered fire station because I can't be certain it'll be operating in 20 years. Well, that means the cost of capital goes up. Or if a reinsurer says, listen, I'm not willing to buy the reinsurance of this flood risk because my models suggest that flooding is going to increase in this particular river delta and the cities built around it. So I, I, you know, I think that the inevitability of us tackling this is pretty well baked into the system now. And it's really non-political. You know, you can't go out off and say, listen, I think this is all overblown. Ergo, I insist on only paying this much premium for my flood risk. It's like if the market is charging X plus 20 basis points, you're going to have to pay X plus 20 basis points, whether or not you think climate change is a real thing. Uh, and so for that reason, I think that not only is there an underlying burning platform that we might want to tackle because we don't want to live in a soiled, waste-infested kind of home, there's also the commercial and innovation imperative that means it's an enormous opportunity. Azim, this, this brings me actually, you know, achieving net zero, I find it to be almost daily in the headlines that sometimes I feel it. Like it's just another buzzword that we're dealing with. 2050 seems far away. If we break this down to next five years, what do we need to do as a community? And, and when I say community, I'll start by entrepreneurs. What do entrepreneurs need to do to put us on that trajectory? Over the last two years, I've seen an increasingly large number of entrepreneurs say, we want to work in this space. Um, and there's a set of different motivations. They want it to be meaningful and last. There's no bigger mission than the decarbonization mission. But they've also realized that there's a chance to build fantastic businesses in there. I mean, you only have to look at Tesla or Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger to realize that you can take build businesses that look at land use or food, the food system or mobility and make stellar returns from them as, as a founder. And I think that those things really all do bode well because there is a certain level of talent that comes with the founder mentality that allows you to achieve exceptional outcomes. The, the complexity here is that in a traditional, um, I'll call it a kind of a textile startup, right? You go off and you have the technology working, then you achieve product market fit. In other words, you build a kind of shonky product that people want to use, and then you get it out there. And then you start to think about crossing the marketing value of death. Can you get people to, to buy it in a kind of profitable way on a unit cost basis? And then you get to your scaling value of death. Can you kind of scale that? There are lots of complexities within net zero projects. So one is that it may not be cheap at all to get product market fit, right? And the internet, you can do that on like $20,000. If you're doing something involving geothermal, even demonstrating that the technology works might cost you 50 or $100 million, let alone if you're doing it in fusion. So you get this issue where you, you sometimes have to front load a lot of cash early on before you've proven anything, which is a really unappealing prospect for any investor. But then it gets more complex as you start to think about how you roll these things out. So say, for example, I have some funky new proven carbon sequestration technology that in order to get to scale, I need to find huge reservoirs underground. Now, I'm a great lab scientist who's figured this out. I'm not going to be able to go to Google to find that expertise or AWS, Amazon Web Services. I'll have to go to people who are experts in that, like BP, who know how to push this stuff out of these reservoirs and they'll sure as hell know how to push it back. So the importance of having corporate partners to help with the scaling and the operations is much more important in this sector than it was in 
the traditional sectors. And it might be for reasons of expertise. It might just be that they're the ones who have the rights to access those reservoirs. So I think in the this particular sector, we are going to see much more strategic corporate activity in scaling these companies out than we will have seen in the traditional internet sector. But my, the but I would add to that is the important thing is that this isn't done in such a way that we're trying to protect old redundant businesses like the petrol business. That would be my concern. And that has always been the concern of software founders when a big incumbent comes up to you because you know that unless they're willing to pay, buy you out at a premium, what they're really trying to do is sell a few more, use your widget to sell a few more of their own old crappy widgets. And we want to avoid that. What we want to do is we want to say, listen, you know, oil majors and big food and so on have all got deep, deep expertise that is kind of relevant in helping us get across these various proof point value of deaths, whether it's the science one or the product market fit one or the marketing one or the scaling one. And we're going to have to work with them because that's where the expertise resides. This actually brings me to, to a point, Azim, and solar panels. I heard a very interesting podcast with Rama's, yeah. uh, Rama's Naam about you know, solar panels. And he talked about the exponential decline over the past 50 years and it was a cost reduction curve of around 30% for every uh, doubling of installed capacity, right? Why did this happen? Can we replicate, you know, going forward in the next five years, this reduction? Or is the issue not in reduction and we have a, a different issue that we have to deal with in, in the next phase? So I think a lot of us got blindsided by Moore's law, which was a relationship in the semiconductor industry, which identified that through successive engineering improvements, you could effectively double the performance of your chips for every two years for the same dollar price. Turns out that, that Moore's law is in some sense, a kind of a specific version of a more generalized relationship called rights law. And rights law describes how in certain types of products, you can describe how much cheaper it will be based on the learning experience and the learning experience that would come from the doubling of, of production. So this isn't a performance improvement on a cost basis because you're getting better terms of trade with your suppliers, right? I'm buying more widgets to put into my machine, therefore you give me the widgets cheaper. No, this is that we are better at building what we're building. Um, and you know, Wright applied it to the manufacture of aircraft in the US originally. And it turns out that if you do have these engineered products, you can ultimately have a learning curve on which you get returns. The reason solar panels um, have got cheaper and therefore solar electricity is that they have a very similar um, semiconductor-like set of considerations about kind of packing of circuits and components on a sort of a, on a on a medium. The reason you see this happening with wind turbines is that ultimately, you know, the wind turbines output is related to the area of the that the blade sweep, but the area rises by the square of the the length of the blade. And so, as you get new techniques to make the blades bigger, you get this nonlinear improvement. So, I think there's very little reason why you can't see a few more years of this happening with with solar panels because they they're not reaching the kind of quantum limit that we're reaching with semiconductors. And then there are new technologies that are coming through universities that have more efficiency. 
And so the kind of pricing that we're getting for solar contracts, which is a kind of approaching one penny per kilowatt hour, so the sort of cent level, is still high on where we will be in five or 10 years. And I think that really changes, um, changes the way we think about energy. If you were to tell, you know, the audience who are individuals either on their journey as entrepreneurs or looking to build a new business, if we were taking a look at this solar area specifically, what technologies would you build businesses around that you believe can um, add exponential value in the next five years? So if you're a traditional, what I think was a traditional entrepreneur, so someone who's looking to do a venture class return and you look at the solar business, it probably isn't appropriate for you to go off and say, we're going to do solar installs. It might be that you come up with some sort of marketplace for selling excess solar capacity or solar optimization tools because you have enough customers. And that would be naturally more the place that I would look at. But there, there are lots of spaces, but the lens I think needs to be fundamentally what bits have got mature enough, they can be project financed, in which case, if you're going to build a venture business in there, it's got to be in a complementary product. What things are too risky for venture to take, in which case you'd need to, if you're passionate about that, have the depth of expertise and find you know, more patient capital. And then in the middle is where are those things at the biting point now where or you can imagine within two to three years, they, they could be at a sort of mainstream affordability. Azim, I'm, I'm interested, I'm curious to know how you think we solve the storage problem, if you think it's a problem to start off with. That's a great question. It's a nice theoretical problem, but I haven't yet met a single person whose electric vehicle has run out of batteries. I've met lots of people whose phones have run out of power, but no one who's driven a car and it's just conked out on the M40. The thing that I would note is that the national grid, which is um, you know the thing that runs Britain's grid for international listeners, doesn't seem unduly worried because it's this switch is not going to happen overnight. What ends up happening is that the switch happens over a graduated period of time and people innovate around it. There are a few ways to think about this problem. Is storage just a problem of cost? Because if the cost of wind and solar diminishes, let's say another factor of 100, right, which is kind of reasonable in the next decade or next 15, 20 years. So it diminishes that much. Well, why wouldn't you just build excess capacity and say, listen, we don't need storage because always somewhere within reach, the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. And so Okay, we can't be as simplistic as that because there are going to be issues. But I imagine that storage will get solved in quite a sophisticated, nuanced way where you end up having excess capacity. You end up being able to ship that excess capacity around using high voltage DC lines, which are amazing, by the way. So why not kind of why not store your energy in the wind in the atmosphere up in the Pennines and just pipe it down these HVDC lines to London when you need it? And then I imagine a pretty mixed economy of storage solutions ranging from my neighbor's car where I can just borrow 10 kilowatt hours because I need it and pay him or her via something through to novel solutions that might have different demand response. Like a friend of mine is building a gravity-based storage where he has cranes that lift up bricks that weigh tons and tons and tons when the sun shines and then slowly lowers them overnight through to all of the other things that we're familiar with. That mixed economy is not too dissimilar to what we do in the internet with respect to content. So, you know, right on my computer chip, I have my on-chip cache, then I have my flash memory, then I have my RAM, then I have my solid state drive, then I store things in the cloud, and then Netflix puts certain things at expensive cache, edge cache servers near my ISP and other things back in its data centers, wherever they happen to be. We've had the trade-off between cost and latency and capacity in other areas. And I think we'll do something similar here as we've broken the link between storage 
and generation. And that's what sort of fossil fuels have sort of did. They combined the two. So that means that I'm not eliminating the possibility that we use lots of hydrogen, that we use lots of hydrogen for storage, we use lots of hydrogen in vehicles and fuel cells, that we have nuclear and fusion um, kicking around. But I do imagine it'll be rather more of a mixed economy than we have had over the past hundred years. This brings me to actually one of the sectors that I'm really passionate about, and that's carbon capturing technologies. And the reason I'm, I'm really passionate about it is there's so much carbon offsetting that organizations can do. So someone has to capture carbon somewhere or another. But I take a look at it and I see a lot of the technologies that are being developed require a lot of capex, require a lot of front end development. And I wonder, is there an opportunity for nimble startups to take a different approach when it comes to carbon capture technologies? When we think about carbon capture, uh, there is a temptation to think of those big, vast vacuum cleaners um, that cover yeah, 500 square meters and suck it out of the atmosphere. There's also storing carbon in the ground through land use and soil. In a sense, I think soil carbon is underrated. What's interesting about how you might tackle that is that you can do it using mechanisms that are not dissimilar to what successfully built eBay and Airbnb. So essentially, you've got a whole load of people who have houses to rent, as it were, which is the Airbnb model, right? They have fields and the market may be broken because there isn't a good marketplace for it. The marketplace being allowing people to list the carbon sinks they have and they're willing to maintain and at what price against those who have to you know, pay for them. And what we see there is there are kind of typically fragmented market where the supply side is very, very heterogeneous, very dispersed, and the demand side is, is too. And what we know is the way that you make these markets succeed and grow, I mean, you take someone like Airbnb, is that you create some consistency around the way that the, the supply is being provided. You kind of give it a clean grading, you give it a nice interface, you create trust and verification mechanisms, and you put those in place. Now, those things have existed, of course, gold standard, silver standard, and so on in carbon offsets for a while. But again, coming to this as an internet entrepreneur, it just does not, it's, there's no scalability in it. I mean, it's not like an Airbnb rating or an e, you know, eBay rating for all of its weaknesses. So I think that there's some decent product thinking that could be done around that. And then there, there are marketplaces that can be built. The bit that I suppose is a bit tricky is, is the fact that there isn't really a market price per se. There are these sort of mandated costs and they vary extensively depending on whether you're in Sweden or California or West Virginia. But I don't necessarily think that's a blocker, right? I mean, I think you start where you can start. And as we discussed in one of the earlier questions, ultimately the whole of the world is going to move towards carbon pricing anyway. I mean, it, it's going to fix itself. So I'm curious about how you're thinking about the problem. Are you thinking about it from a, a kind of core science? How can we suck it out of the air or how can we geoengineer our way through it? Or do you think that uh, there are other ways to solve it as well? I like crashing related worlds together, if that makes any sense. So I think there's a, definitely a, a scientific approach to it, but I think it needs to be crashed with a, from a commercial perspective. Something that, in my opinion, is modular, can be in the hands of, of every individual. So if you take a look at you know, direct air capture, but direct air capture right now is large plants. And what's keeping me up at night saying, how can I create that? How can that be in Azim's house? How can that be in my house? How can it be in everyone's house uh, or in your company so that you can scale that? 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's really interesting I, idea. In a way, it's decentralized carbon capture. It's what you sort of have in mind. But how much do you think a typical homeowner could capture in a year from the sort of atmosphere that swoops above them? To be honest with you, <laughs> I think it has to be a, a collective effort for it to scale. So London has an enormous amount of new developments, right? So if all of these new developments have a air carbon capturing aspect, for example, that can make an impact. But if it's John on, on his own or Azim on his own, I don't believe you can actually have that much impact. You could talk a commercial building can potentially capture around 350 metric tons of CO2 per store for each year, potentially, and multiply of how many commercial buildings that we, we have. It would be interesting that if you could build a technology that is low enough energy usage that could sit on a commercial building to sequester carbon, and it wouldn't just be their carbon, it would be everyone's carbon, right? Because it's just what's in the atmosphere. That technology seems like it would be really breakthrough. And then the question would be, why wouldn't we just find empty spaces uh, where the land is cheap and where there's sunshine and build these systems, right? It's one of the things that struck me about in the silicon chip industry. The ARM chip architecture was initially as kind of low power, low footprint, designed ultimately for mobile devices. But you're starting to see those designs go into data centers, which are the least mobile things in the world, right? Because they're the size of massive buildings. Because that form factor allows for real density. And it turns out that you just get a density of semiconductors that gives you a better, a sort of more industrial scale data center than a processor designed for data centers. So when I hear you say this, I'm thinking, well, if John can build a small enough energy efficient piece of carbon capturing technology that you could put on the top of a commercial building in, in say London, so a thousand square meters top floor plate, that's pretty impressive. Wouldn't I want him to just put that in a bunch of carbon farms on cheap land somewhere because that technology would would make those work far better? Maybe, yeah. And, and it, it's definitely a, a, a good argument to, to have. I think, I think the other thing about carbon capture that strikes me is that ultimately we're putting out between 50 and 60 gigatons of GHG equivalent every year. And at some point that's going to have a price attached to it. Say it's 10 bucks. That's $600 billion a year, a revenue pool that essentially fallow territory. Now, we're going to do a bunch of stuff because we're going to power our ships and our vans and trucks through batteries or hydrogen, and that will be zero carbon. But there are still going to be processes over the next 15 to 20 years, which will be producing carbon that we'll need to pull out. And at some point, we might need to go into negative emission territory as well. Azim, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, frankly, and I genuinely did enjoy our conversation. I hope this is not the last time that we have you a guest here. My pleasure. Thank you. And um, good luck with sucking carbon out of the air. <laughs> it is a challenge. Thank you very much, Azim. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.